Welcome to the Great Base Tennis Podcast. I'm Steve Smith. My guest tonight is Gino Octa. We're in Boynton Beach, Florida. It's the poor man's Boca, Boca Raton. I love Boynton Beach, love tennis, love the opportunity to try to help people with tennis, and it's great to have Gino tonight. 2020, maybe we talk about 20 students from uh, Gino's trip this time around, and maybe 20 players from the past, but this is third generation. Gino um, works up at the Richmond Hill Country Club. We had Richard Hernandez as a guest, and then Miron Mann. Um, but Gino, great name, Gino. I think my name is rather boring, Steve Smith. <laughs> if I was coaching you and you were a kid every day, Gino the wino, get over here. <laughs> but give us a start. Where, where did you start your journey in tennis? Yeah, so... Uh... I was born in Dubai and my family, my dad was a tennis pro out there and uh, we moved to Canada when I was around eight years old. And uh, my dad shortly got a job working uh, as a tennis coach at Richmond Country Club under Richard. Jerry. Um, yeah, so my dad, Jerry was, uh, you know, he's been coaching Richmond Country Club for a very long time. Um, he's coached Moran when he was younger. So he's been, you know, he's been there for forever, but, uh, yeah, I started working there. Um, I went to school. I played, started playing tennis there around eight years old. Didn't take it seriously until I was around 11, 12. And, you know, I was fortunate to work under a lot of different coaches who you had significant influence on. Uh, you know, like Richard, Miron, you know them very well. I've worked with coaches like Hubert, uh, Carlo Livalsi, Myron Grunberg, um, all alongside my dad. There's last name Hubert, Hubert Crash. Um, yeah, really interesting one's, one's life in tennis and one's path in tennis with, uh, but you played provincial national junior tennis. Yeah. So I, I did really well, pretty well, uh, in juniors in Canada. I ended up winning provincial, t a provincial title a couple of times and, uh, I was pretty high rankedly in the nation. Um, yeah, I had a lot of success at provincial level. I had success at a national level and uh, I ended up playing college tennis at Utah. Um, let's let's uh, interrupt right there where the Georgia had, I know with your sister who was also a provincial champion, indoor, outdoor, age 15, she's won the 18s. Um, you went on a trip to where, Vanderbilt, Ohio State and Georgia? Yeah, so we drove down from Toronto and we got a chance to visit. Uh, we decided to make a road trip out of it and uh, visit a couple of schools on the way down. You know, she's only a sophomore. But, uh, you know, we got to see, she's never really seen, you know, she's visited a couple Ivy League schools, but she's never really seen any big time tennis schools. So we visited Ohio State, which I know Connor went to, um, your son, and we passed by Vanderbilt, which is great to see as well, and Georgia on the way down. Great. All great facilities. Yeah, great tennis too. Um, you got to be careful with what hat you wear. I one time went, went to Ohio State to visit and I had been out at UCLA and I showed up wearing a UCLA hat. My son Connor says, what are you doing? And I go, what do you mean? He goes, you can't be in this building wearing that hat. I actually was with Austin Krychek and Jameer Jenkins, and I had this UCLA hat. And Jenkins, he went to Virginia. And I said, Jenkins, if you can't do this, that, I can't remember what it was, um, hit a serve above this location on the back fence, 
whatever it was. Um, I said, you have to wear this hat. It, what it was is to wear the hat for an hour or have your photo taken in the hat. And he said, okay, I couldn't wear this thing for an hour. But his, we did take his photo wearing a UCLA hat. <laughs> with, um, But you decided at one point to uh, pursue finance and you went back home and went to York, right? Yeah, so I ended up moving back home to Toronto and I finished my undergrad there. I, um, I graduated with a degree in finance and economics. And um, when I moved back home, I got a job um, working for Richard, um, coaching at Richmond Country Club. And after I graduated, I decided to take it full time and uh, work close, more closely with Muron. Um, working with a lot of the younger kids. I was working a little bit with everything. I was coaching adults. Um, but recently, I, when I, after I graduated, I started working more with the high performance kids. And our listeners, uh, Gino, we'd ask him about his first visit to our program, but he's been here recently, better part of a month. We just had a young coach from Montreal, Patrick Jeffrey on. Boom, boom, Jeffrey on. The name of a great Montreal hockey player with, um, but he did he, his same thing. He, um, had a degree in finance economics, but he, he decided um, to make tennis his career. Why, why did you chose, why did you choose my, well, you my know, English? When I uh, got into coaching, yeah, it was just as a part-time job while I was finishing my degree. And when I graduated, it was at a time when my sister actually started taking tennis a bit more seriously as well. So, you know, I started spending more time with her and, spending, you know, the group of kids that we've brought down, I've known since they've been very young. They were actually, when I started working full time, they were probably the first group of kids I had started working with. And, you know, there's guys like Tal, um, who has spent a significant time down here, but his generation of uh, juniors is also another group that I spent. I actually, my first trip, the first time I ever met you was, um, it's probably about 10 years ago. I came down with Miron and Tal was one of the, you know, I think he was 11 or 12 at yeah, the time. Let, yeah, let's go through the Tal Goodman. We use, in some cases, we never, ever use a last name, but Tal um, spoke to him the other day because his brother's here, younger brother Yuval. And so what do you call it? Uh, FaceTime? So all of a sudden his brother hands me this phone and I'm looking at Tal Goodman. There's another player here. I just call him Malik because it has a strong last syllable, Aiden Malik. Aiden Malik. He quite well. He's two in the twelves, I believe, in Canada, and he he's been here before. So we can talk about that people's first visit, second visit. So um, Malik says, "Tal Goodman, he's the smartest human being I've ever met." <laughs> I got such a kick out of that. But with uh, Tal, I remember when he came. He's like ten years old, and you know we tease and say we should call it great base, solid fundamentals. You know, we, we are a little bit cross-eyed when people say, are you a great baser? It's just, you know, how could you argue with having a great base? But so, um, yeah, I remember that trip um, with, but then Tal, um, I guess we could go with, the other day I took a phone call from David Getz, who's a coach at UPenn where Tal's currently playing. Yeah. And Tal, I think for those players that are a little bit small in size, stature, you know, maybe he was 5'4", and now maybe he's 5'8"-ish. You know, he's 5'8 in the program, but or 5'8", standing on his tiptoes, but 5'9 in the program um, on, on the roster sheet. 
with, uh, but I think it was really good for um, you to say, hey, uh, Coach Getz, can I just put this on speakerphone? The coach next to me uh, is from the same club. And then just to hear a few things, um, just so many things. Um, what could, would come to your mind from that conversation well, to share with the other players? And I think that's the whole thing is that, um, you know, you just listen to coaches and they say, you, you, you need to know the, about the people who went before you. Yeah, no, I think that conversation, just listening um, in on that was just so insightful. And, you know, he mentioned something how, uh, you know, coming in, Tal was last on the roster. And, you know, he was getting his ass beat by the guys. Up, 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 stop. We're okay. That's all right. We're going to keep it clean. Sorry. We're going to keep it clean. But now keep in mind, Canadians, they're all bilingual, English and profanity. But that's all right. That's okay. No one, no one will be offended. It's okay. Don't worry, Gino. No, but um, no, he said like getting his butt kicked. His butt kicked. But uh, Coach Getz was saying how like he's probably the most improved guy, and uh, you know because of his he had he has such a good foundation technical base that his best tennis is ahead of him. And you know there's guys on the team that are you know right now ahead of him. But because of their, you know, technical limitations, he really thinks that um, Tal has a lot more upside and, you know, more, I don't know how to say it, but he, he worded it really well. Um, just his tennis career. There's not a ceiling. I mean, there's not a ceiling, yeah, exactly. There's not a ceiling to his game because he's got such a good technical foundation. And, and he did say that, these, you know, and certainly it's not about just talking about his players of today, but he's been coaching tennis. Uh, he's 65 years old. Good head of hair, doesn't look it, but David Getz, smart guy, PhD. With um, Tal played his first match, singles and doubles, and they played against Navy. This is something else that thinks of interest from a tennis standpoint. So Chris Garner, who was a great player in his own right, um, played, at Ver- played at Georgia. I think he played for a year, then he coached at Ohio State. Uh, under Ty Tucker, and they're great friends. He did so well at Amherst, but he went right up to Coach Getz and said, uh, I can guess where your number six player was, who, who taught them. And I hear that, it's not really fair because I spent so much time with Tao, but I, I'm more of a supplemental coach. I mean, he was taught by Richard and Miran and the whole team at Richmond Hill Country Club in Richmond Hill, Ontario, just north of Toronto. So Chris Garner goes, I know, is, it's my name in third person. Steve Smith taught him. And then David said, you know, my players don't have, when I give lessons to somebody, you know, they just don't have that distinctive look. But, you know, certainly with Tal, I mean, I think that even though he's 18 years old, he was just an after-schooler playing two hours of tennis a day. He wasn't one of these full-timers. He did end up spending six months with us after graduation. But I told Getz, I said, well, one of the reasons Chris Garner is going to pick that up he, he just, this just past summer, he tried to recruit one of our players. But he brought his sons to work with me, I think four different times. You know, he, um, so he knows. I mean, we go very, very slow. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm flattered by the fact in some ways that people can recognize their students. Um, you and I were watching an academy just yesterday, and it's like, no one's going to recognize anybody coming out of that academy. There's no signature. There's no, uh, and there should be, um, I mean, like, 
is it a short compact swing and is is the swing the racket getting below the ball does the kid have a long hitting zone no two tennis players end up exact looking exactly the same but um no but some of the players actually with Tal said hey coach I don't know if this guy's going to be able to uh help us out and but I think coming back to the relationship between Richard Hernandez and David Getz you know Richard he was pretty chilled when he was a student of mine many, many years ago, but he, you can just hear Richard going, David, I'm telling you, this guy will play for you. And, you know, granted, he took the year off after I was going, he, he, he grew. And, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a sleeper in the sense. I said, you got to watch the guy play basketball. I mean, he's, 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 he's athletic. Brain typing, we talked about this on the podcast, but he doesn't. I told David, I said, there's one word, he just has to be more aggressive. But then, you know, the people listening is that the next uh, call, I'd tell his brother, I said, hey, get, get your brother on the line again. And I'm going to tell him, I said, hey, you know, this is what David's saying, you know, that, you know, you're, you're hitting through the court, your shots are penetrating, but you've got to hit with more trajectory. You got to hit deeper. And, you know, what you're looking for as a player is every little detail, anything that's going to help you out, anything's going to help you out. With, uh, I think we could backpedal 2020 if we were to go, you know, the 20 people that are here today, or you mentioned some names already, we can bring those back up. But today we ended up at Florida Atlantic University. I'm walking around and going, you know, at first I was thinking, I haven't been on this campus in 45 years. But actually, I was the director of tennis at Seguzo Bassi, which is now Chris Everett's. And I remember going to the FAU library for two days. Why I went there um, instead of a public library is I set a meeting up with one of the professors. I want to find out as much as I could. This is in the early 90s about homeschooling because it was just new on the scene. And, but the, I mean, it's, it's certainly a different place now. But, you know, they, we found uh, for just today, the second practice, we have a place where there's 16 three-wall racquetball courts. It's kind of a tongue twister. Three-wall racquetball here in Florida. And they're always empty. And we took the kids there, and, and we just did two hours of hitting. That's a lot of balls hit. And then we went to the university. And we've only been down in this area you know, three and a half months. We need to get more and more organized. But um, the young guys from your program, so we say, I'd say there was uh, 16 players there. And easily eight of them were from your program. And they ran 12 400s. And... The best was, a, you know, 115 on the average. You know, some of the younger kids or some of the kids that are, are, are not up to that at this point, uh, they just ran 10. Run one, get a minute off. I mean, I, I remember doing that when I was a kid. Uh, but that really became popular not that many years back when people found out that's one of the things that Andy Murray was doing. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of our guys, too, you know, just talking about, you know, like the FAU, I was there the other day and I such a great you know i was talking to coach natalia about it i was like why didn't we bring our guys here from the get-go because it's such a great facility and i think uh you know the first week we were here you know those guys running it was just like it was it was a mess for them but you know now looking a couple weeks later and it's i mean one of our guys it, it took him this long to finally start looking like an athlete and um 
I think just being exposed to that and I think just seeing other athletes, especially in a facility like that, it was just a great motivator for them. With um, all these names, Natalia Sorkin, she was on one of our earlier podcasts. I, we've, I, the group I was driving, we drive by the stadium and I said, you know, Natalia and I talked about that. We've got to get in that stadium, have you run stairs. Uh, you know, you're hard pressed in Florida to find hills. There's not too many hills to run. Yeah. But you need to be able to run anywhere and everywhere. We still, in just three and a half months here, as a group or as a standing workout, we haven't been going to the beach. You know, yeah. it's very interesting. A lot of tennis players, they hear beach and they think workout because they don't go to the beach just to kind of hang out and throw the Frisbee. Um, you know, all these names, Carlo Lavolsi, he's a very successful businessman. And I remember Richard Hernandez sending Carlo to me to be trained. What a personality. I remember, you know, being wrong. I said, I was up in Toronto. My kids wanted to play ice hockey, so everybody has their motive. So Richard set, set it up where I could teach in Toronto. And uh, what, what a great time with my kids playing ice hockey. But um, Carlo, really sight unseen, um, with a few other uh, successful business people, was going to sponsor um, Vicky Duval. Vicky Duval. But I remember telling Vicky at one point, mm-hmm. Um, I said, Duval, are you calling people with their last name? Duval, you don't have a running program. And next thing I know is I hear the door, you know, we had a place that could sleep at that time, maybe 20 players. And uh, I hear the door shut and it's, you know, it's, it's a very safe neighborhood, but it's like, okay, it's like 1030 at night. She's going for a run. But the athlete you mentioned uh, who for the first time in this trip looked like an athlete, um, but he asked me, it was late at night, he goes, can I go for a run? And you know, you just think, where does that all come from? So we had these character meetings. We had these two, um, a coach and a player in from Montreal. They came at the end. And you know, the kid from Montreal comes in and he's won the provincial title. Was it, was it 18s or? Yeah, he won the under 18 provincial title. So he wins the under 18s. And, and uh, so all the kids know that, even though you're your group for the most part. I mean, Malik just got back from Italy. So he's traveling with Tennis Canada some, but for the most part, they just have, you know, their lens is not very wide, you know, their exposure. Uh, but it's just, it, for me, it's um, storytelling, is, you know, reflective thought, reactive thought, reflective thought. Is that just reminded me of that story with Duval. And, you know, if, and it's like, okay, you got to start running. You have to have a running program. You need to know your, your 40, your 400. You need to know your heart rate, your rest. You know, you need to know, you need to know your recovery rate after one minute. Um, you know, we always tell people, if, if you don't like to run, play golf. Um, you know, I, I think kids who aspire, the, you know, I know a lot of kids are listening to this with their parents as they drive to tennis practice or tennis tournaments. Um, you need to be conditioned to be a college tennis player. College tennis is a goal. Pro tennis is a dream. And um, how are you in the gym? How are you in the, at the track? I mean, I think a, gr- a great thing is, can you start in the gym and end in the gym? And even if the gym is, um, you know, okay, you're maybe it's your garage and you're on an exercise mat and you're doing yoga for 10 minutes, but then you do a technical routine in front of a mirror. You could start your day and end the day that way if you're really organized. And that's where, you know, get off the cell phone. Get off the cell phone. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, one thing that our guys that we brought down, I think, you know, one just ongoing message has been like they've all had to reinvent themselves as athletes. You know, back home, 
they're not used to or accustomed to working this hard, like crack of dawn at six in the morning, seven in the morning. So I think, you know, looking back at when they first started to now, it's like a lot of them are starting to, you know, it's starting to click with them and they look a lot stronger too. And not just physically, but mentally. No, 12, 400s is healthy. Yeah. Run one. And even if they're, they're at, you know, some of them were at, um, I mean, they were just under 90 seconds. Um, one of the dads, uh, Natalia's husband, Alexi Sorkin, he's there and he's really got into running. I'm calling him skinny man. And the kids were got in the van and go, I can't believe that guy. But he just ran a half marathon. I think he was like 602 a mile. Um, it's just passion. You know, you, you, we all, one of the kids said, could you repeat that? This comes from Jim Lair. Wherever you put energy, you want a red car, you want a shiny red car, you can find a way to have a red, shiny car. Lair says that. You want to have a big bicep, you can have a big bicep. Uh, but, you know, a kid asked me, can you repeat that? Yeah, whatever you put energy into. Um, you know, one of the highlights, I think, of your group being down here is um, Nicole Erickson, uh, who's a charge of mental performance here at the FM. I don't think I said that with our intro. We're, we're, we're talking to you, as always. We're here in the most recent weeks, uh, FM Tennis Performance Center. And for just for her talking to the kids, I mean, imagery, you know, and I do that all the time. You see yourself as a, a champ or a chump, but like Lavolsi, I haven't talked to Carlo in, in, in quite some time. Um, actually, Richard was uh, talking to Carlo and some others at one time about a Tennismith village. And, um, you know, they, I was allowed to pick out where, where they would, where this would happen. And uh, that was pretty flattering. Um, so it's amazing how many projects say, okay, we could do this, we could do that, but we have been working with these players. I think a lot of times, okay, you're doing A, but you're, you know, you're thinking about, gee, you'd like to do B. And, you know, the brass tax of it is you're doing A as a tennis coach, you got to pay your bills. This is what I do. I get up every day and I coach. But I think that psychic income is that it's not just another day. It's not like just another tennis lesson. And um, I think the people, they they understand that when you say, okay, we're going to get up at sunrise because the coaches are getting up at sunrise yeah. and you're, you know, NFL days. I mean, we're working 18 hour days um, with, um, but I mean, I could, you know, you mentioned a few, a few people in the beginning go back with Carlo. I, here's a fun story with Carlo. I was with him at, and Richard at an orange bowl or an Eddie Herr and very proud of his heritage. And he's, he's actually, cooking pasta and he brought, excuse me, he's cooking, he's preparing spaghetti and he brought some pasta with him. And one of the, one of the kids was about to put ketchup on the pasta, on the spaghetti. Put, he was about to put sp ketchup on the spaghetti. I remember Lavosi going, if you put that ketchup on the spaghetti, I will kill you. <laughs> he, he really didn't mean it, but perhaps the kid felt it. Uh, there's so many stories like that with... Uh, but tell us, um, 2020, uh, some of the other names you mentioned. So, I mean, Hubert, when I first started competing, at Richmond, I worked a lot with my dad, but one of the coaches that I spent a lot of time with um, between the ages 12 to 15 was Hubert Crash. And I know you've had... Well, with Hubert Crash, I think there, where there's value for our listeners. He's playing at the University of Texas. He's in the lineup. That's big time to play tennis at the University of Texas. Um we had two players at the same time playing in the lineup 
And um, at that time, there were 17 million people in Texas. So Hubert, he goes to play a money tournament and it was a neighboring town to Tyler, Texas, where we were based. It was Longview. And Dave Anderson, he was with us for a long, long time. He's been a guest on our podcast. So he um, has autonomy. He's running one club, and the next thing he was running two clubs. And Hernandez, I remember, uh, not Hernandez, uh, Hubert Crash. Anderson's not only running the money tournament, but he's hosting Crash. Maybe a few other players as well, but Crash stayed in his house. And people say, how do you remember these things? Anderson's the person who remembers what court you were on and what the score was. And uh, Hubert, is, he just ha- you know had dirty laundry and he just had it in a basket and he handed it to Anderson's wife, just, just assuming that she would do his laundry. And she said, well, let me show you where, where the machines are. That's a tennis kid. Like, you know, I mean, I, I beat up on tennis kids. I'm sorry, but you, you should be able to do your own laundry when you're in college. So Anderson told him and said, hey, you need to make changes in your game. And Anderson wasn't that much older. Now, Crash would tell you that, uh, that Anderson played him and beat him, but it was while he was changing his, stro- his strokes. Now, he rebuilt his game. Now, here's a guy who got to the junior Wimbledon doubles final. He's playing at the University of Texas. As an amateur, he went over to uh, Japan. He's ranked one in Japan. He never played on the Canadian Davis Cup team, but he was good enough to be a practice player. Um I can tell you all sorts of stories about his game. I think you have to mention Robert Steckley. Then I'll tell you how that ties in with um, Hubert. But um, Hubert, you know, I did a number of things, but David, just like um, I didn't start, Tal Goodman, Anderson really helped him. I know then Richard Bodine, who we've trained, he spent a lot of time with Hubert. I remember Hubert being with us at Seguzo Bassett when uh, Vince Spadia. So Anderson and I were working with Vince Spadia. Spadia was already a great player, so we're not telling anybody, okay, we've coached Vince Spadia. Although when we were working with him, he won the Orange Bowl. And um, a kid by the name of Jameson Hawthorne, Ty, Craig Tiley, whose name comes up quite often, one of our students, he was at Illinois, but he first went to Illinois. He was recruiting what we would call tier two players from Texas. Hawthorne was good, but he was not in super champs. Using champs, that was something that they should have never done for years. That's the Texas mentality. They break the the juniors into three tiers, which in many ways is very good. There was, there was many positives to it, but the football it was Super Bowl. So you're a super champ or champ or regular. The poor kids who were in the lowest group. Are you regular? Yeah, I'm regular. <laughs> and the other kids were super champ. And I mean, I'd hear things. Uh, are you super? Yeah, I'm super. And then the one, the one question: Do you soup up? And I would go, Oh my god. But with, um, so Jameson has a pretty big serve. He's there in the morning, Rich, Hubert, 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 for some reason he wasn't there in the morning. They're in Boca training with us and Hawthorne had a sense of humor. So he's just telling Hubert, give it up, give it up. This kid Spadia, he goes, he's taking my first serves. And it was just a disaster. And if you, you know, go back, I mean, he really returned surf well. He was very good off the ground. He was Agassi-like in many, many ways as far as uh, short, compact swings. But, um, no, I can remember working at the Segujo Bassett. We were working with a number one girl in the 12s in Florida. Anderson, again, he'd be able to tell you, was a girl by the name of Michelle Greenwood from your club. She came down, and then she came back like four or five months later and she beat the number one junior in Florida. I remember Robbie was in charge. He goes, how's that happen? I go, she's not rebuilding her game. 
she started from square one with Hernandez. She did this when, you know, you know, I could have her story wrong, but say if she was seven, eight years old, she was very young. But, you know, I think the, the listeners can find value in this where um, here's a guy, Hubert Crash, University of Texas. He rebuilt his game. It's not like he stepped away from the competition as well. You know, he ne- then he was never, never out of the lineup. But I mean, I could tell you about his tennis game. Um, pinched the shoulder. You know, he wasn't loose in the right shoulder. And then, he, you know, he never had the point, never got the point where really had a big serve. He got to be number one in the 35s with the ITF and the yeah. ITF. But now one thing with that is that it's very expensive. And, and you know, the people that rank really high in the ITF 35, 45s, um, it's situational. Now, a lot of times really good tennis players, they're, they're, by that time, male or female, they're married, they have children and they can't play those tournaments. It's not like the the best players. My resume used to read uh, top 20 in Florida. <laughs> and I wouldn't, wouldn't even mention that on, or put that on a resume now because people don't play open tournaments anymore. But that's when everybody played open tournaments. But I was 19, so top 20. Maybe he was one. He was top 20. Um, but I used to say that on any given day at the Miami International Airport, there was 20 people who could beat me. Because, you know, are you playing enough tournaments to be ranked? I think that's one good thing about the UTR. Um, so your first visit, I'll tell you a little bit my, about my first visit later, but why don't you uh, go with a few more names? Yeah, so actually one of the first visits, when I was, the first time I met you, one of my prominent memories was uh, we come we came to that tennis club that you were working at, and um, I remember seeing Liam, young Liam Draxel there. And, you know, I'd heard about him back home in Canada, and, you know, he had been one of the more um, successful young juniors and under 10 or 12. But uh, I think it's interesting to know for listeners to hear that, you know, he, he was one of the guys that was with great base at a young age. Um, now he's well, I, I, with Liam Draxel, um, I met him through Richard and through Carl Hale. The parents, they, they had a timeshare at Saddlebrook. Uh, his father, Brian, great guy teaching pro he's a great competitor they used to you know so initially for sure we did video work and you know they were working off the video but then um he started working with uh casey curtis who's obviously been very successful coached uh rayonich um you know then you know he followed one's path i know he was at saddlebrook for a long time um so i would say okay we had an influence i think you know brian like if you were to ask him he still follows our content but you know we tell people that we've coached a lot of number ones in college tennis and, and Liam was one of them, but I don't tell people, oh yeah, I coached Liam Draxel. It wasn't a heleva- an elevator ride like a lot of these coaches where they worked with him for five minutes, but yeah. what you could learn from that, you know, the in, the expression, the apple falls under the tree. The Greeks say, you know, that we, we say that the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. The Greeks say the apple falls under the tree. So, Brian's a great competitor. Lean would play with anybody and everybody. I mean, here's a guy who got to be number one in the NCAAs last year. You know, we spent a lot of time walked, talking to his dad. His mom was there. We did a little video work because one of his dad's friends uh, is a biomechanist with my memory. Maybe it's the Cincinnati Reds. And we did a little video work on his serve. But um, he loved to compete. Great attitude. Smile on his face. Would play anybody and everybody. He was by no means a tennis snob. You, know, you get that all the time where kids are like, am I playing with so-and-so? Who am I hitting with? I mean, I think that's worth 
just saying again and again on a podcast or a conversation with a tennis parent, don't let your kid complain ever. If everybody played a, once a week, got on the phone, called somebody up that was at a lower level than them, tennis would benefit tenfold. But everybody is clicky. Everybody wants to play with a better player. But um, no, right now it's Liam Draxel, big, strong legs, great competitor. Um, I think when you get to his level, I don't think it's fair or it's right for me to start saying, well, this is what I think. Because I think it's different when you're talking about kids in their formative years. But, uh, you know, he's at a point where now the speculation is he going to be able to make money. And um, but it's very, very interesting. Um, and just to keep hanging in there. Did you, you also think with someone like that is that, um, it's not easy to be living in Canada and find a way for your kid to be in Florida. It's not easy. Yeah. I know he's been here. He's, I know, I've known him for a really long time, uh, just following his tennis career as a junior and um, now as a collegiate player. But I think there's other guys like, you know, there's been so many like Jeremy Langer, someone who's had a lot of success in NCAs. Um, Langer has a, uh, I think he's won the most matches um, at Indiana. Well, there's another Jeremy, the coach, Jeremy Wurtzman. You get on our course, Tennis Intelligence Applied. And Wurtzman, uh, that's a great story with Richmond Hill. So I took a job at Tennis Corporation of America. Doug Cash, who ran the operation basically for years, told me years later, he goes, well, that was not really the reason I was brought in. They brought me in because they had a, a situation where the pros just couldn't get along. Where the point, there was a point where there was even a fist fight in a pro meeting. So I come in and there's 20 plus pros. And, um, yeah, I was looking through Alan Schwartz and his organization, TCA, they had 55 clubs. And um, I would have loved to have them embrace what we've put together as far as a curriculum. So with um, my train of thought, help me out, senior moment here. Where was I? Oh, we were talking about uh, Jeremy. Yeah. So no. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Senior moment. Um, with uh, so Jeremy, you got to help me out here. That's Andy. Andy Fitzell. Uh, Brandon Flanagan does a great job. Andy Fitzell helped me with that with these podcasts. No. So we were talking about Jeremy. Yeah. So, but uh, let me tell you about Wurtzman. So I show up, and I one of the smartest things I did was uh, I wasn't going to teach for the first thirty days. I was there 30 days and just observed. Everyone thought I was laid back, easy going. And in the meantime, I was getting every kid filmed, every kid skill tested. And, um, you know, I took the, the, the most egotistical coaches and filmed their students. And, and uh, anyway, that's another story in itself. But um, I didn't get any information for the first 30 days. So here's a kid, Jeremy Wurtzman. He's ranked three in the East. So he's, he's winning. He, he's got the it thing. You know, he was, I mean, I remember taking um, Jeremy to Richmond Hill many times. There was a guy who, um, give me a minute, I think of his name, but he's ranked 77. Very easy to remember. He's 77 and this kid's in the seventh grade. And Mark Wurtzman played Ohio State. So this kid, we're, having, we're playing matches on um a Saturday and we're playing matches on a Sunday and 
the kid who's ranked 77 in the NCAAs, he loses to Jeremy's older brother, Mark Wurtzman. And I say, hey, come on back tomorrow. You can play Wurtzman. And, you know, of course, I knew he'd come back. He was so upset that he lost. And he comes back, and I didn't tell him that he was going to play Jeremy Wurtzman. I just told him he was going to play Wurtzman. So then he comes back. He, he's 77 in the NCAAs, and Wurtzman's in the junior high, and he wins. Well, the other guy played threatened and played tight. But so this is where Jeremy Wurtzman's parents, Mark and Judy, were convinced that he needed to change his game. Your, your kid's ranked three in the East, and you show up and go, I think he needs to change every shot in the book. And, you know, the videotape, we always say science, logic, and imagery don't work. So I called Richard up. And by that time, Richard Hernandez was working at Richmond Hill, and I knew the players, and I'd been up there and such and such. And you just have to drive around Lake Ontario. So I said, hey, you got to bring Michelle Greenwood down here. And she was a year younger. It was just one set. So this 10-year-old girl beats this 11-year-old boy. And, um, you know, and I, again, it's a, it's a fun video clip to look at. Uh, we have every stroke, but, you know, it's just, um, you know, at age 11, you see him hitting a backhand volley, and then you see the change. You know, and he became a national junior champion. He was number one in the NCAAs. You know, that's somebody that, um, you know, I didn't spend, the, you know, I spent quite a bit of time with Liam Draxel, but here's a guy that, you know, definitely had the signature. But, you know, one thing too with Liam is that, um, you know, he's, he wasn't, wor- you got to the point where he wasn't working with his dad. I'd say his dad was always his coach, but he started working with someone else. And it's like, okay. And that's where you say, okay, I'm, you know, does, okay, no problem. You know, we, you can provide service, provide services. Okay. Here's some courts, here's some players, here's some drills. You don't have to be everybody's technician. Yeah. But Langer, uh, Langer is the same age as my son and, uh, um, Randy Bloomendale, we had Chuck Creasy on a podcast. A lot of people just told me they've really, really enjoyed listening to Chuck. I think he's one of the best speakers, best motivators in the game. So, um, my two, my, uh, Jeremy and Connor, two peas in a pod, um, they could have both gone much, much further with the tennis if they had a little bit more drive. Um, but Langer, um, yeah, I mean, I think that Langer worked at it harder he could have played Davis Cup for Canada. Yeah. He had the, he had the skill set. I remember, like you know, he's as a junior, he was just so good. He had such good hands, really good lefty. He spent a lot of time down here with you as a junior. Yeah, a lot of time uh, with um, you know to be down here in Florida in the Florida heat. You're a Canadian boy, and you know, I think parents need to hear stories about kids who've tanked and. Um, yeah, so we're the Langer, you know, we're at a junior tournament and, you know, he just, Vince Lombardi, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And, you know, he, I mean, I could ramble and ramble about tanking, but, um, no, so I, I think that, um, it's, you know, it's not like you're say, under a microscope, but you, you know, just, okay, well, what happened with this kid's tennis game? And I really think they're, the governing body of tennis, the USTA, is there should be accountability. You know, okay, who's playing tennis? They signed up, and you know, coaches should really be working together, um, just like educators. You know, how are we doing teaching math? How are we doing teaching English? And 
what are you know how, how are we progressing with kids in science and and we have tests and you know I think with the skills tests um, you know perhaps okay we're not going to get into grip swing body but um, you know a hundred ball test a hundred balls feeding a hundred balls is doesn't that takes a fair bit of time but um, you know just for simple math okay feed a kid ten shots and um, and then let them know where they land. And then even you get a point where you could just, you know, give them a piece of paper, you know, now it would be done electronically, but where did the 10 shots land? And what, what was, what was their score? Um, you know, that's where I think kids in basketball, okay. They just know that, Hey, the ball's going in the hoop. Um, with, uh, who else you got on there? Well, it's, you know, it's, that kind of skill, that kind of those kind of drills. When you talk about like tiebreaker tests, skills tests. You remember you telling me a story about Mario Cosentino and Miro and how they, would, as juniors, they would just go out and do a tiebreaker test all the time on their own. And I think with our group of kids that we've brought down, a lot of them, you know, coming in, coming down here, they never really took initiative to do that kind of stuff back home. So, um, I think that story of Mario and Miron doing it out on their own all the time, I think is so, is, is so. You know, I think one person, I mean, Frank and, and even Lenny, Lenny was not, uh, Lenny, father of Miron. Um, he wasn't the guy who was on the court, but, you know, helping out with rides and helping out with phone calls, you know, just making it happen. You know, the mom's involved too, for sure. But with um, Frank Cosentino, father of Mario and David, I remember telling Richard, I said, no, we don't want a dad teaching tennis. You know, if they're not a tennis teacher, and I think that's where parents get in a lot of trouble. You know, they, they make the mistake of starting to tell their kid how to hit the ball. Just tell them where to hit the ball. And go, I said, I'm going to feed you 10 balls. We'll break Peter Burwash, a Canadian. We'll break the court into four quadrants. How many forehands can you hit? And again, just like, you know, um, feeding breadcrumbs to a pigeon, everybody can feed balls. Just toss the ball, and how many forehands can they hit? Maybe it's just in the quadrant straight ahead. So up over the net, up over the service line, how many can you get out of 10? But um, So tiebreaker test two, tiebreaker test three. We usually don't get past, past tiebreaker test one. It is the first question I ask kids when they come back. Have you done the tiebreaker test? And they usually they say no. And I know it's a little bit more difficult in an indoor um, court situation they outdoor, a lot of people in the Southern part of the United States, they've got empty, there's empty courts in their neighborhood that you could go to do the, the tiebreaker test. Tiebreaker test two is getting the ball. Now we call it over the 10 and under line. And I think Andy Fitzell has really added to that where take the volley, you know, we're t- teaching strategy, close in, get three feet from the net, 130 degrees volume potential and be able to volley cross court. But just in the tiebreaker test, take the volley deep. But Mario and, uh, Miron, they used to do that on their own. They would back in the day. There was no ten on line, so they would get skip ropes. Now, something I've said before, over and over again, this story comes up all the time. It's not to beat up on Tennis Canada, but federations. I'm at the tournament. Um, there's a young guy. His last name, ninety nine percent sure, it was Silva. Big kid in the fourteens. Looked like he was ready to, um, you know, enter college. A big kid, and he wins the fourteens. Lost to. Frankie Danzevic. So Mario wins third place and he's going to Japan. The world's for the world's the 14s are in Japan. I believe he's already been suited up. You know, they've already ordered his 
Maple Leaf. Uh, you got a, you got a great flag in Canada. So last second, they decide the governing body of tennis. We're going to take two players and two coaches. And I just think, oh boy. I mean, that was just that wasn't fair. But um, no, so yeah, you just can come back and you get you get a visual. But if you really, Paul McDonald's longtime friend, been in tennis forever. Yeah, I would consider him a tennis intellectual. Once you've coached someone for a long period of time, you know, it's maybe it's not quite like bringing up a child, but it's, you know, you weren't there changing the diapers. I think Terry makes you think he was there when he was changing, <laughs> he was changing Agassiz's diapers. But actually, Andre had won the national 14 indoors before he ever met Nick. So that means you're pretty good. Um, but yeah, go on and on with these players. Um, with, uh, go ahead. Who else you got? Well, you tell me a story about Frank Dancevic and, uh, you know, Andrew Schneider was someone that you brought up before too. He's had a lot of experience. Um, yeah, I mean, jot that down. So my senior, senior is here, um, Andrew Schneider is I'd, smaller than I am. He's top 50 player in the world. So Richmond Hill listeners is a beautiful, beautiful facility and I'm going to help them with corporate outings. And we interview Andrew Schneider. So he shows up and it's a Canadian tennis magazine. He's on the pitcher looking like you've seen Nadal so many times. He's down on his knees. He's clinching his fists. He's, he had beaten Boris Becker. At that time, Becker was number one in the world. Um, you know, we ended up not doing anything with Andrew, but um, his father vacuumed courts at Mayfair West. And no connection 20 years later, um, Rayonich's father and they both had you know what we would say which I think maybe maybe be racial as a white collar job um, blue collar job um, but anyway they were working manual labor vacuuming courts early in the morning but they did that so their kids could hit balls I think parents need to know that hungry dog hunts best I mean you're going to get out what you put in but Danzevic uh, you know, I spent little or no time with Danzevic. On the other hand, he spent a lot of time looking at a video I made. Um, I believe the coach's last name was Carter all these years ago by, but it grew, this is great for people here in Niagara Falls. Um, tell me Bruno, I should know Bruno's last name. Bruno from Niagara Falls. What is it? Bruno Gostinelli. Yeah, I worked with him and it was tragic. He was killed in a, what, a motorcycle accident a couple yeah, of years couple back. Years he was working for Tennis Canada. Uh, I think he also, he became, if not ranked, he was ranked very, I think he might've been one in the country. Yeah, he played for Kentucky. I don't know if he was ranked one, but he was very good. So I remember when he was young, his father was saying, he's going to the net. And that was like, so, so great for me to hear. Um, but with, um, oh no, I, I made videos and the coach was supportive of that. Richard arranged it. But I turned a clock ahead Danzevic, he was called the poor man's uh, Roger Federer. You know, one-handed backhand, he, he complete player, could play all over the court. And we're not talking about chicken liver. This guy gets to be 65, I think, in the world. And uh, I know he beat Roddick. I think Roddick had the flu, not to take anything away from Danzevic, but it's like when Federer, Federer's first match, he lost to uh, Nadal. He probably shouldn't have played that match. It makes you wonder if it would have changed the, the rivalry at all. 
but he went, I remember he went three sets with Nadal. So um, Myron Grunberg comes into the picture in many, many different areas. So Myron is coaching Frankie. So Myron has respect for what we do. And he asked Richard to spend some time with Frankie and, and Richard said, all right, come into my office. And he goes, I want you to watch this tape as little kid hitting the ball. And Frankie, by that time, is an established player on the tour. And and um, Frankie's going, why am I watching this? And Richard the Bear goes, look at it. Watch it. Don't take your eyes off of it. And then he takes a second look and he goes, that's me. And Richard goes, exactly. That's what you need to do. You need to go back and do everything that's on that tape. There's a clip of him on our course, uh, Tennis Intelligence Applied. I was with Matt Clare at the US Open, uh, someone who's been on a podcast, national coach of the USTA, and Frankie walked by and you know, I didn't interrupt him. But I one time was at a tournament we was at, and the Leafs were, it was Stanley Cup time, and the Leafs, uh, everybody in Toronto wants to talk about the Leafs, except for some of your visitors. Don't know anything about hockey. I go, they should kick you out of the country. <laughs> so anyway, with, uh, so I talked to Van Devanzevic, and he goes, you know, you know, I'm a perfect stranger to him. And he goes, you're the guy from the tape, which just made me think, and which I found out from Richard is that, you know, and we have all sorts of stories where people work off the tapes we make. Um, no, we were at the term of this battle of Boca and Malik. Uh, I mean, I thought he did great. He got beat one and oh, but you know, you got a, a guy who's 12 and he's playing a guy who's 18, but the kid who's 18 he just spent a week with us and you can already see it. And his father's already completed all five courses, all five courses. You could just see it. It's, and that's, that's, that's what we, the great base, that's what we'd like to see happen is that it's free and just go to work, just go to work. Um, I know not all parents can do that, you know, just because of their, their day-to-day schedule. But um, with, um, at this Battle of Boca, we saw Victor Lilov play, who if people study our content, there's all sorts of film with Victor. And I heard recently, you know, this person said it and that person said it, that after he worked with us for almost five years, if not five, um, and I'd go ahead and look at the footage. I think we, I'm sure we find film from age eight to age 13, a ton of it. And people say, oh, I had to change everything about his game. And just like Liam Drexel, I wouldn't want to say, well, I watched him play, this is what I think. But I would, if someone said, you know, what do you think of uh, Lillo's game? People who study the great base, I said, I'll tell you what. In my mind, I'm thinking, what would Vic Braden say about his game? What would Bill Jacobson, if I could just pick three people, what would Vic Braden say about his game? What would Bill Jacobson say about his game? And what would Welby Van Horn say about his game? And just to say three words with those guys, Vic Braden's science. Yeah. Bill Jacobson's stats. Welby Van Horn, balance and athleticism. That's when people ask me, well, what do you think? I'm going, let me go back to my mentors and I'll tell you what I think that they would think. And I, I, I like to tell people, I'm not gonna tell you what I think, I'm gonna tell you what I know. But um, Myron, Myron ended up, he's done so many things. He was Richard's boss. He was the general manager when Richard was hired. I don't know if you knew that. No, I didn't know that. So, um, and he, he's a tennis guy. He's a tennis guy. So he grew up in tennis. And um, so he was in the management side. I think he was in the player rep. I know he was the, 
not the Davis Cup captain, but the Davis Cup coach of Mexico. And I believe he was a Davis Cup coach, not captain of Canada. And then he worked at Roddick's Academy. Uh, then he, that was where he was an employee. And then his management skills really showed how they, you know, he just, he was a neat freak. He really came in and cleaned the place up. And um, then, then at one point with a group of others, he was, he was the owner with, um, but with Myron, um, it took him time, you know, to get a handle on what we do. Uh, but I remember meeting him the first time. I could talk a little about that trip. The first time I ever went to uh, Richmond Hill and met Myron. But it, it takes time, you know. You, you, um, you, you, it can't be a blink of an eye to um, try to have a handle on what we put together. Well, that's the biggest thing I've learned on this like trip. I've spent here about almost a month and a half now, and I think the biggest thing I've gotten out of this trip is just having a more. Uh, and you found respect for the content and the information I've been taught my whole life. You know, I started at Richmond Hill. Basically, that's all I've known my whole life. And, you know, growing up, I've been had the fortune, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of different coaches that have come and gone throughout Richmond Hill. You know, like names like Huber, Carla Volsi, Myron Grumberg, I spent significant time with them. And they've all told me very similar things that I've now teaching to the kids that I work with. But, you know, one thing when I was a junior, I you know, had a lot of different coaches voicing their opinion towards me. And um, and I was a pretty stubborn kid, so I never really absorbed the information, the great base knowledge as much as I should have. You know, I had a conversation with Richard about it. And, you know, I look back now as a coach and just see, like, you know, I wish I listened more and really paid attention more to the things that were being told to me because now I saw it. You know, I, I look back at my career as a junior, you know, I had – I had good results as a junior growing up at provincial national level. I didn't have as much exposure internationally, but, you know, going to play college tennis, I realized, you know, there were a lot of holes in my game that I, uh, I wish as a junior, I had taken time to, you know, build my skills and really grow as an all court player. As a junior, I was more of a base signer, you know, I had really good defense. I was really fast on court and, uh, I never really took the time to work on my transition game. You know, my volleys and it hurt me in school and I struggled playing in the lineup at Utah because of that. I in in high altitude too, right? In high altitude. Yeah. So, you know, my game style going into Utah was, I had to adapt and, you know, during my time there, I, you know, I developed pretty good serve and I had to serve in volley almost every point. And, uh, you know, my game grew in that respect, but, you know, I think that's one thing a lot of college, a lot of juniors going to school, you know, they don't, you know, they, they win so much at a, in this small little pool, they don't really take the time to grow, um, you know, and acquire skills as a junior, which I think now as a coach, is that's something that I want to really encourage a lot of my younger students that I work with, and especially the guys that we work, you know, they're still, the guys that we brought down, they're so young, and I think they still have a lot of time to grow. And someone like Tal, for instance, Tal Goodman, you know, he's at a young age, he's always been, um, he's always been working on developing skills, versus winning. I never thought he was someone that had a lot of success as a young junior, but, you know, he developed a, a great skill base. And now in school, like you said, like a lot of, I think a lot of his best tennis is ahead of him. Well, yeah. And he's got a, you know, a smart, smart guy. I've coached so many people who are smarter than I am, but you got to be managed by stats. 
you just, you have to force, you gotta take time and space away from someone. You know, when you talk about age, it comes back to Torben Ulrich, the great Dane. So I'm interviewed when he was 48, he had age, his legs looked like he was 18, his legs. And so he was asked how old he was and he looked at the person holding the mic and the camera crew and he said, well, do you mean intellectually, physically, emotionally, chronologically? And it's really interesting, you know, I mean, you don't want to really be judgmental, but kids be mature beyond your years. Um, they dropped this with the SAT, scholastic aptitude test. Um, familiarity breeds contempt, you know, and you had to write an essay about it. And with, you know, so your, your dad's a coach. That's a, that's a question to ask. You're coached by the same team. You're at a club. You were loyal to the club. Your dad works there. So I think you become familiar with the coaches and you're bringing this group down. That's a point to touch upon is we're not really teaching them anything they haven't already been told. Now it's, it's the situation too. So Miron now is a director, Richard after 34 years, he's no longer working. Um, he's doing projects, but he's no longer working. I wouldn't say he's retired, but um, you're teaching after schoolers. You, you have them two hours a day. And these kids, I think they're shocked. We're hitting the wall today. And I go, when you're walking to court 19 and 20, you're walking by the squash courts, that wooden surface you should be hitting, hitting those balls. You walk in, you look, walk in the front door, you look to your right, there's a track, you look through the windows, there's a swimming pool. Or you can sit in those nice chairs, buy a muffin and look out the window and just yak, yak, yak. Um, but, so where were you in comparison, you think? I mean, we, I ask people all the time, like say a Dave Anderson, who we've interviewed twice now, is, 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 is it really changed that much? I mean, from the 80s to the 90s, from decade to decade, uh, I think the kids get beat up a little bit, that they're softer. I mean, how would you touch upon that? Like, where were you as a teenager? Um, where would you compare your group to the group today? Have the coaches, and I think that, for me, co- players come and visit, and we yell three and three, and the, kids, the coaches who come to visit are the former players. Go three and three? It used to be one and one. Yeah. Well, you know, so we've gotten softer. No, I definitely do, you know... It's funny, I tell the guys um, all the time, like, oh, you know, the coaches are so tough. And I said, when I was growing up, they were way tougher. Like, and I think it's just, a, it's just the times now. Like, and for me, I grew up, you know, my dad was my coach. He was always pretty strict with me and stern. And I grew up with Richard, like Hubert was always great with incorporating discipline, you know, the Japanese culture. Carla was super stern, like, and, um, you know, I think Miron does a great job of doing that as well. I think I could definitely do a better job of being a lot more demanding. And I think that's one thing for me coming here is like, I really see the impact of what a, dis- like what a disciplined student and what, um, what that kind of focus can translate into. And I think a lot of the guys are sh- right now for them, like this past month has been a big wake up call. I do think Richard Hernandez... Uh, Richmond Country Club for years, David Anderson, Brookhaven Country Club. And all the times I visited both those places, from a tennis standpoint, you don't feel like you're at a country club. But yet when the kids leave the court, especially in an indoor setting, it's a country club. I always tell people, well, if you can charge French fries, 
uh, if your parents have an account and you can go to the snack bar and no one's there and they know you're having a Coca-Cola, no one knows you're having a Coca-Cola, um, that's where, like today, okay, we're hidden against the wall at a public park and within we go to a, a university and it's, it's a community setting. That one part of the university is just open to the public. And, you know, then it's just different, you know, so you have to, um, players can come from really nice facilities, but you just have to realize that, hey, wait a minute, this is a little too comfortable. Yeah, and that's one thing that, you know, with the Calusa Park setting, I think, you know, it just gives us that open freedom to really, uh, you know, just voice, just really coach. And, you know, in a country club setting, you know, there's limitations, there's members and... Yeah, this, well, at this park this morning, uh, the coach from Montreal and his player... You know, you guys, not chicken liver, he's provincial champion. Uh, we did a 45-minute workout in the parking lot. No one hit a ball. No one hit a ball. And, you know, I, you, you, you know I, for people who are just getting into the coaching business, you try to do that, you're probably going to get fired. But the reason, you know, we can do that, it only works if we do, you do the video work. It only works if you have the rationale. It only works... If you can explain it to the kid uh, with with science, with sophistication, but also then with simplicity, with simplicity, you know, one thing with uh, Biron, uh, like yourself, he grew up at Richmond Hill, uh, born in South Africa. I spent some time in Boston, but by the time he was like nine years old, he was at Richmond Hill and loved the game, loved to compete. He loves any type of competition. So then he goes to college, and there's always controversy. Is that well, someone had told, told me to go left, told me to go right. There's not continuity from one coach to the next. There should be. Now, granted, personality comes into it, but um, you're just not getting. You know, the guys tell me use a different grip. The guys tell me use a different swing. It's just you know like comparing French to German. But Miran, he came and did a, a internship. It was a school year. It wasn't. Uh, 12 months, but it was, I think, a healthy nine months and these 18-hour days. But I think what's important is that, and I, I think it's very difficult for kids that are in regular school, but if they knew the history behind it, if they, if they knew the history where, you know, like today, um, you know, you ask somebody, do you remember Andre Agassi? And a lot of the kids today, they wouldn't remember Agassi. And that's unfortunate. Like, here's this guy who hit the ball so well. And this is how he used his legs. Yeah, that's this is why he could just generate so much force. You know, it just looked like he was snapping up every time and throwing a medicine ball. Um, but um, yeah, so anyway, that with uh, with Miron uh, tells a story where he had too much respect for pro tennis. You know, he, he especially in doubles. You know, the big guy always said he should have been he should have played hockey and been a stay at home defenseman. He didn't. He wasn't built for speed. So he, you know, he, he has some success in doubles in juniors, ITF, and then he has some success in the college scene. He, he's take, after the internship, he's taking, he's back in Canada. He's taking a group of uh, kids to uh, futures and he asked if he could play the next one. And long story short, short story long, they say, yeah, you play the qualifiers and he was fit, but he hadn't been playing lost 35 pounds on his internship, but he can look at a potato and put weight on. But, <laughs> but, but anyway, he, uh, he, he gets through uh, the qualities and 
I think it was two rounds and third round loses, but he gets ATP points. Um, but someone like that is going to, in a New York minute, look at someone and go, no, the guy doesn't force. The guy doesn't understand the geometry of the court. Um, but I do think that's important that, you know, for people perhaps who listen to our podcast, that you know someone who's making that transition from college tennis and they want to be a teaching pro, they shouldn't get the job because they can hit the ball. You know, they need to study. They need to study. Um, but speaking of controversy, the coaches being different, just, just today, um, you know, and that's where people need to know with these phones is there's just constant, instant communication. So we work with a player, and then she ends up at the national campus. And, uh, you know, then I'm talking to a coach who works at the national campus that we spent a lot of time with. I would say that Matt Kalora's brother, Chris, you know, they were never fortunate enough to work or even, you know, to be with Vic Braden. I mean, their dad, Ernie, he obviously had respect for Braden. But that I would say they're Bradenites. You know, you, you don't have to meet Braden to be a Bradenite. And um, this is something that for everyone, don't judge the unfinished product. If someone is going to have their kitchen remodeled, it's going to look worse before it looks better. And you got to build it down. You got to break it down to build it back up. Um, but no, I can talk about my first visit, um, to Richmond Hill, but go ahead. What else you got? You know, you think back about your days or no, and what would help the listeners? I think that's the, I think the biggest lesson here for me is like, you know, I look back as a coach, just being here for a month. And, you know, again, like you said, it's the information, the knowledge that we're telling these kids is not much different from was 10, 20 years ago. And, um, for me as a coach, I think I've learned, I've, I have a newfound respect for it, just having more knowledge of the history and, um, you know, playing college tennis, you know, we talk about coaches having different, different, uh, approaches and opinions. And that's what I struggled with growing up and playing college tennis. You know, I went from having this great base knowledge always taught to me. And then I go and, you know, my grips are being changed. My toss is being changed. And, uh, it was hard to adjust and it was hard to filter out, you know, what do I believe? What do I listen to? And, you know, now like coming back and, you know, from a different perspective as a coach and having a great understanding of how important it is to have a good base, the great base and uh, what a difference it can make in terms of tennis careers. And a lot of kids, you know, we get a lot of kids from different programs coming to us, you know, looking for technical change. One girl who's been down here for a long time, you know, two years ago, couldn't even hit a ball. It was just a walking injury, and now to see her. 13 months. Actually, today, driving the van, the boys were talking about her. And you know, I think one thing that got their attention is that we made videos for these kids, and she's already done her notes. And I let them know she's already handed her notes in. And um, you just say, well, where's this going to end up? Where's this headed? And, you know, you have, you know, I don't think, you know, I just go, now, the chances of you sending me notes are slim and none, and Slim just left town. I'm not betting on you to send me notes. And prove me wrong. Sit down, because if you you hear it, you forget it. The rate of forgetting, I'd love to you know, you know, know, go through a few things and come back to point number one. So, okay, what was point number one? And you know, now we have kids bringing your group, they're bringing pencil and paper, but they're not writing anything down. They're just bringing the pencil and paper because they don't want to be reprimanded. And now they're not writing it down. They're not rewriting it down. They're not taking quiet time. And the rate of forgetting, the rate of forgetting is scary. 
Um, actually, one thing with a great bass, um, it comes from Richard Hernandez because he was telling me one time, and we certainly, as a group, you know, shake our heads and just vent. Braden used to say, if you're venting, just say stop. But you're just going, oh, it's so bad. Oh, that kid, oh, the teaching is so bad. And um, if you have the influence from Braden, for example, you're in the know. You're just in the know. Sorry, you're just in the know. And, uh, but Hernandez is the one who said, Steve, Steve, um, he's my student, now I'm his student. He said, tennis needs a great base initiative. I should say that again. Tennis needs a great base initiative. And then that's where, okay, that's be a great name for this pathway that all these, these systems that we've, we've been studying. Um, Richard Hernandez, I quote him often, Steve, in tennis, remember, people aren't stupid. They're completely, <clears throat> I have to bleep this one out, effing stupid. <laughs> Sometimes that F word, fire truck, it does, it does work. Um, so I'd like, like to get into talking about the, some of these Canadian players, like Dennis Shapovalov, who spent 10 years at your club. So when I first went to Richmond Hill, what comes to my mind is I go, and Davey Anderson goes with me. Richard calls up and goes, we need some help. And at that time, you know, I'm still thinking of Anderson, you know, like, okay, we're, uh, you know, he had worked for absolute peanuts. You know, he was a lab assistant. And it's like, no, we, we just did the work. It wasn't really about money. And um, like, let's go. So Anderson goes with me and we go up to Richard's place to help out. And we, Richard goes, we want to film everybody who hits balls. Go, okay. So I, we were there a week. And what I remember about that trip is that they were very nice. And um, I remember they had any, we had any quests. I said, yeah, I'd like to go to a hockey store. As a hockey player, I just like to be around the equipment. I've been away from the game for a long time. Let's just go see skates and sticks and gloves. And so we're on our way to just go to a hockey store during lunch break. So we go from this residential street. Next thing you know, we're out where there's four lanes of highway, four, four lanes of traffic on either side. And I remember Dave Anderson just says, stop the car. And he bolts out of the car. He's dodging in and out of cars and he saves his kid's life. The kid's a toddler. He's like 18 months, two months. He's just walking in traffic. That's one thing I remember about that first trip. But also that first trip, uh, Harry Fritz was the director of tennis. And Richard, we didn't know that until after we were there, is Richard had been let go. He's a young guy in his 20s. I'm, I'm probably in my late 20s. I have to go back and just pinpoint what year it was. But Anderson and, and uh, Hernandez is definitely in her 20s, and the director doesn't want us to be there. It's like, oh, okay, that's a little awkward. Richard had been let go, but he was reinstated because of the way he taught tennis. And then I know Richard still, he still communicates with Harry Fritz. Now, Harry Fritz, the best player in America right now, highest-ranked player is Taylor Harry Fritz, his nephew. And actually, he hits the ball, so he starts to serve, starts to return. He starts the point so well, serving and returning. But we all know from the service line in, he's not the best that he could be. And you know, it's not a matter of, well, he's got to change now. The horse has been out of the barn a long time. The family, um, Taylor Fritz's family, actually offered Raven Clausen. They played team tennis, said, will you coach our kid? And I told Raven, you should have done it. You, you know, At that time, Raven's thinking about his, his career he's playing. I said, no, just coach the kid. Just, just film him and just 
doesn't mean that you'd have to stop everything and coach him, but teach the kid how to volley. And, um, but that's where that started. And that's where it's so important to film. And it comes back to that Bradenism, the dimensions of the court. You know, we'll have 20 people, 30 people did it the other day. Repeat this theme. The dimensions of the court and physical laws dictate stroke production, no coach's opinion and unique theory. So then you have no tennis arguments. You know, now you, people don't go, they don't get past the forehand. Um, but so anyway, with the grip, um, let's go with uh, your thoughts. You spent a lot of time with, with Dennis. I know Richard hired his mother, Tessa. Miran, Miran worked as a sparring partner. A guy like, like Taylor Fritz, he's right up there. I mean, you get to be top 20 in the world. You're, you're a really good tennis player. He, he does such a great job forcing but I remember Richard would call me up and I'm doing more of that now where these Zoom calls, talk to his staff. But I remember being on speakerphone and uh, that's one thing that Tessa never bought into with, uh, I, hate, I hate that expression, but but you know Dennis, with he has such an open racket face on both sides. He has calculation on his volleys, but he's aggressive, he's coming in. With, if people will go to uh, YouTube and just plug in uh, Dennis Shapovalov, age eight, Alexandra, I think yeah. she, she's the coach hitting with him. Yeah, Alexandra's playing points with him. And, you know, I think we need to go back to Steckley, Robert Steckley, who we spent a lot of time with. He he worked short-term with uh, Dennis. And uh, I'm thinking, they should hire Miron. They, you know, but now Miron, he's married, got a kid. So it's like, well, I would, I would have been saying they should have hired Richard. Um, but... You know, to just just tweak his game from the service line in. Jimmy Aries said about Dennis, I love this kid. He comes in, he's aggressive. He goes to the net all the time, but he doesn't know what to do when he gets there. And, but, you know, I think the better the player, the more they're going to be criticized. And, but just like in our country, whether it's Fritz or Francis Tiafo, um, would someone, uh, you know, argue that Tiafo would be worse if when he was younger, not now, if he was younger, he was taught how to hit the backhand volley differently. The, uh, but tell us a few things about Dennis. I mean, you're, you're what, two, three years older? Yeah, I'm a couple years older than them, but I, when my dad got a job at Richmond Hill, Tessa was hired shortly after. So I spent a lot of time with Dennis and Tessa. You know, my dad and Tessa worked alongside each other for a couple of years. And um, I just, I remember Dennis at a young age and growing up and he was just always so aggressive when he played, you know, he always believed and he always um, projected this image that he was always going to be pro one day and his game, you know, at age eight, the way he was playing, you know, it's very similar to how he plays today. You know, he was always going for his shots. He, he was never a typical under 10, under 12 player. You know, he always went for his shots and similar to like, players like other Canadian players like Bianca, Felix, you know, they always played with this identity at a very young age. And, you know, like they never had, you know, they were never always the best at under 12, under 14, but, you know, their real years shined later, you know, where they, they really, um, really grew their game at a young age and let it just, just let it flourish now. So I think that's a good lesson for everybody. It's just like, and for me too, just reflecting like, on my junior career, I wish I spent more time focusing on playing the right way and not as the result. And as a junior, I was very result-based, result-oriented. I focused on, you know, I had a lot of success as a junior and I just kept on doing what worked. 
I kept on doing what I was familiar with and I never really stepped outside my comfort zone and um, going to play college tennis, you know, I was, I was restricted on, you know, coming forward. Like I didn't feel comfortable coming to the net. And as a junior, that was always something coaches always pushed me to do. And, you know, eventually I did, but it was, you know, I, I think I would have had a different path in terms of tennis if I had focused and spent more time focusing on skill acquisition and, you know, really stepping actually away from competition for a little bit just to build my game. And I think that's one thing you see a lot more. And I think, you know, some of the kids that are here down before, like before us, you know, they've taken time off competition just to rebuild their games. And I think that's so important. No, we could talk about the, your group. I think of your sister, I mean, provincial champion, indoor, outdoor, 18, she's 15. She's proven herself as a competitor. She needs to get in the gym, get on the track. I think she could flip it around. I mean, she, you know, granted she can still tweak some things, having the more racketed speed on the forehand, not pulling out with the left side. We go through player by player and that's what's on film. Um, the, um, yeah, I mean, what can each player do? What's the prescription? What's the prescription? So the the idea of seeing the big picture, when it comes down to success, that's what Richard remembers saying about uh, Dennis. You know, when that kid put his headband on, he was, you know, he was going to be a player. That That's the number one is the inner belief system. Number two is the work ethic. And number three is the knowledge. And, you know, you look at that tape of him on court 19, he's way ahead of the curve um, for a young kid that age. But coming to the net, I mean, that's like almost unheard of now, which is really sad. With um, Miran, he tells a story about taking him to like a provincial camp with 24 kids from Ontario. And, and, and he thought that Dennis was probably number 20. But, you know, and they skipped out going to... Uh, you know, national tournaments and you know, didn't go all the way out to Vancouver. And, um, but actually Jeannie Bouchard, um, you know, she had success before, um, she did really well at Wimbledon. She was seven in the world. Dennis wins junior Wimbledon, you know, Felix, Bianca. But after you go back to 1989, Canada wins what was called the Sunshine Cup. There was the Sunshine Cup and the Federation Cup. And the Sunshine Cup, Federation Cup, it was the 18 and under equivalent of Davis Cup. I said, say Federation Cup. Get it right. The Continental Cup. It was Sunshine Cup and Continental Cup. And they were dropped. And it was right, right when the Orange Bowl was played. And, you know, two, three players would represent their country. So Sunshine, Davis Cup, Continental, Fed, Fed Cup. Of course, Fed Cup now is the Billie Jean King Cup. And Nestor, were, um, uh, Nestor was one of the players who's won so much. Um, I guess he's finally retired at age 59. He's played forever. But uh, Robert Janicek is from that group. And um, I remember training him on court 19. He, had, he was number, um, he played one at UCLA, so he's not chicken liver. He's a great tennis player. He's two in the NCAAs. But he had, he had taken that step where he crossed the bridge and said, okay, I'm going to become a tennis teacher coach. So I started training him. And I remember, um, which we don't really do, we don't want to, you make a tape for someone, it's their tape. You don't share it. 
But because he wasn't playing anymore, I remember sharing that tape with Craig Tyler. He said, show your boys this. And this is when he was just building his program. So I mentioned earlier when Tyler, Tyler was first at Illinois, Illinois was, in, they were, it was obscurity. They were not on the tennis map. And he was re- recruiting really good sectional players. He couldn't get really good national players to go there. But um, so here's a guy who's at uh, you know, UCLA and really, really good. And I go, get your guys to watch this slow motion tape. And he had holes in his game, toss way over his head, the way he set for his forehand, forehand volley. It's really interesting, those three things. It's typical, one of our kids goes to a federation, it's not just here in the U.S., in Canada. We've, I've worked with so many Canadian players that go to the Canadian Federation, and they're told, toss high, arch your back. That's, that's, that's one of the norms. Another one is have this horizontal pull on your forehand. And another one is you got to have downplay on your volleys. You know, you got to slice your volleys. Um, but... Um, and I can remember Hubert was training. He was going to start playing again. So it was Hubert, Crash, Robert Janicek, and this character, Robert Steckley, who's so fast. Same age group as uh, Federer. And Federer one time said, when Steckley was assigned to him as a sparring partner, he'd been out of the game for a while. He signed to him as a sparring partner. And Federer goes, I always wonder what happened to that guy. He had more talent than any of us. I can remember Steckley showing him film. It's so much easier to show film indoors and him just standing by the, the monitor. I go, Steckley, you have no power line. Your serve is an IP, you know, but he was so talented. I remember, uh, Richard had so much fun with that. You know, it, it took four, six weeks and he was, he, he was, you know, he, he was start. he started to practice. He was so excited to hit with Janicek and, um, Hubert crashed. I go, I'm getting to play with these really good players. And it's like, hey, kids, you know, so, you know, Janicek's throwing that toss way over his head and, and, and saying, Steckley, you need to be able to play this tabletop return. Just take it and just stick it up the middle, you know, like a Jimmy Connors. It's, you know, it's almost like a lost art now. You just come in, the racket face is flat. You still finish up. Um, and uh, you're not in so many feet behind the baseline with, uh, you know, Steckley, he, I know he played a match for Canada Davis Cup. So he's a Richmond Hill kid. I didn't start him out. Ishvin Toth had coached him. And, uh, but he, I think he only was in the 400s. But what a talent. Um, I remember being with Jeremy Wurtzman in a tournament, and he beat Steckley. And he's so happy because I never beat that kid. All the times we practiced, that kid would beat him. But um, I didn't give him the nickname. Jeremy Wurtzman, at one time, he was called the Turtle. Wasn't that fast when he was like in the seventh, eighth grade? And uh, for that matter, he was never that fast. But Steckley was faster than fast. So so many stories, Richmond Hill. Um, with uh, what about um, we got a kid here from Romania with your group, and he's a Ro- he's he's Canadian, but his parents are Romanian, and uh, his sister's good friends with Bianca Andrescu. What about her? So you you know her story? Yeah, you know I I only. Recently, I only known her recently in the last few years. I didn't really know her very well as a junior, like a young junior, but uh, you know, I've heard stories of her as when she was younger. There was a girl, Maria Tenescu, who was, um, both of them were competing against each other um, under 12s, under 14s, and Maria was the better one of the two. But Bianca always played the aggressive game, and you know, under 12, under 14, that game style very rarely works, but you know, she kept the same, the same thing I did about Dennis is, at a young age, she always played 
um, with an identity of how she wants to play as an adult. And um, you can see her game. That's one thing. She's just so fearless. And she's always been fearless at a young age. And, you know, I know her both on, on and off the court. I've seen her, I've seen her like at her lowest and her highs on court and um, off court. One thing that she does so well, she's so humble. You know, she's had a lot of success on tour already. And, you know, you, you could be walking by the street and she'll say hi to you. She's so sweet. Um, bad luck with injuries. Bad luck with injuries. She's always had a lot of injuries growing up, but, you know, she's always bounced back. And, uh, but, you know, with her game style, it's like, you know, when she's on and healthy, like she's a force. And it's always a lot of fun to watch. She's connected. Dennis is the same way. You know, they have a lot of, we have a lot of Canadians who are just so entertaining to watch. And that's why we're on our, everyone's radar. Richard, um, you know, he has 10 grass courts. And he said that, you know, Bianca's come out to his place before the grass court season. And obviously great, 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 but really more of a raw competitor. I know that you can see, you know, the signs where she copied Halep and there's, there's positives. Um, but, you know, I do think that that's one thing that the sooner the better the sooner the better. We're not, when we say teach refined skills, is slow kids down. You know, can they really play volleys? Or I mean, because you know, can they play all three zones of the court? I mean, I get so tired here and serve serve plus one. Um, with um, let's let's change gears a little bit. Twenty twenty. If we were to, I don't know if we're there, but twenty players from the past, twenty teachers from the past. You go back and reflect. You can learn so much about the experiences, days gone by. You know, history, they say, is, you know, if your experience is the best teacher, history is the best teacher. Uh, but again, I do think people need to reflect. On this trip, um, you know, certainly the parents, we talked about having a Zoom call with all the kids that were here. Great kids. Um, we're not talking about them becoming great kids. Obviously, oh, yeah, we want them to be great human beings. But, you know, the great tennis players, they all want to play college tennis or beyond. Yeah. And that's like, okay, SATs, you know, your, what does it go? You're in order, your GPA, your SAT, your UTR. And, and everything is your UTR. You know, them going to the track today, anything that can be measured, you know. Um, you know, it, what's interesting, and uh, Richard and Mira would know this, is that it's, it's, it's for you to, you know, now be older and have come down here with groups before, but now to be a, in a leadership capacity. I've told people for a long time, some kids taking lo- lessons at a club for two weeks and then they come and spend two weeks with us. We know more about that kid. Um, just because we see them 24 seven, see them 24 seven. Uh, I mean, with another group, we could, with all, you know, we just could get into stories. Uh, Dave Anderson sent me a tennis player one time and he was obnoxious to a waitress and I gave him the gears. And the next day he was obnoxious again. And I had a group of, uh, you know, say it was a dozen kids. It was two minivans. Haz is one from Malaysia, the two of us. And we were, we had a place to stay. There was a sectionals at that time. Um, it was before Daytona, it was several years ago for Florida tennis. And Vic Braden was in town in Orlando. So we had a lot of fun, a lot of things going on. But this young kid, every place we went to eat, 
No one else, no one talked, no one talked to a, um, a waiter the rest of the time. The, you know, so we go in and I go, okay, you know, no vegetarians. All right, we'll have, I'll have um, 12 orange juices, 12 scrambled eggs, bacon and toast. And we're out the door. And we go to Subway and everyone is getting, I'll take 12 roast beef sandwiches, whatever, turkey sandwiches, go to Olive Garden. Did it for the rest of the time. The uh, those are, those are those are the stories that. Uh, but let's go with this group. Uh, you know, so value for the listeners. Um, you know, if we could go with this, you, you name a player, um, and I could just tell you something about their technique or tactics. So, you know, just with a Canadian group, give me the name of a player. Just our first with, name. Uh, we can start with Zach. Zach, you know, he came down here. Um, on his own, and we feel like he was a different guy when he came on his own. And granted, it was a blink of an eye, um, but great kid, voids his backhand, puts himself out of position, and he's in that 98% group where he's looking to hit a forehand, forehand, forehand. He's got to really work on balance. You know, unfortunately, he's been sick um, last few days. But today on the backboard, just drop hit balls. You know, you're really sick, but just shadow swing. But, and he's a bright kid, but it's like, come on, you want to learn to hit a backhand, you got to hit a backhand. Your backhand's not going to get any better by running around it. Um, go ahead, give me another player. Uh, let's talk about Radin. Radin, yeah, I was told he does really well in school. He was apologetic. He put his palms up. We always say, don't put your palms up unless you're talking to an umpire. It's totally out of control. So he comes in and I say, okay, go do this drill. And then he requested another drill. And he gave me the roll of the eyes, palms went up, and then he was like, okay. And then, uh, you know, I let him know uh, that I can turn up the intensity a little bit. And so fair enough, he was apologetic about it. But, you know, he needs to circle his backhand. He needs to go high, low, high, inside out. He needs to have a circular swing on his backhand so he can hit circular spin. But then when he plays, he hits a one hand on a spin backhand. You know, people just, Roger Federer, I didn't know you're supposed to win in practice. Practice is practice. Practice. Imagine a musician. Musicians, I mean, I know nothing about it, but they're practicing a song and they're, now we got to start over. Now we got to start over. Now we got to start over. They do it again and again and again. And they have to work on parts and pieces and such and such. Um, but, you know, common sense is not common. You know, so is he going to hit off a cone? Is he going to get in front of a mirror? Is he going to get a foam ball and go to your squash courts and go, you know, just kick your heels and go, I am hitting a top spin backhand return. And if you're going outside in, this is why you hit side spin and then you don't hit it. Um, and you got to get the same message over and over again. And if you keep telling the person the same thing, you know, our listeners know we use this, this line, there's 2 million time clubs. You're in the wrong million time club. I'm going to have to tell you this a million times. You need to just do it a million times. And that's where we say, okay, the kid doesn't understand the connection between the bench and the brain. You know, we've, we've, we've broken down point play. And, um, you know, kids don't get to GVP. They don't get to the 10 and a half foot mark when their pro shot bounces. You know, that's where slow it down, play 50% tennis, play with some wooden rackets. Go ahead. Uh, Eric. Eric's been at your club a long time. I said, Eric, you don't know how to hang out of the racket. 
you know, Eric, keep it a secret. Don't tell anyone that Richard Hernandez, Miran Mann, the other coaches had anything to do with your game. He can compete playing a set. He can compete playing a match. But to com- compete at the dinner table, compete at the track, I think this is hopefully for all of them, it's been a life-changing experience. You know, he, it's, you know, with, you know, so say he's 15. I think he's like several of them, 15. So they got 75 years to work on their game for the 90 and over. But college tennis, time is running out. But then how we talk to him, I, I understand that Slippery Rock is a really nice school. For the longest time, I didn't know there was a Slippery Rock. When I was a kid, the, the coach would say, you're going to play at Slippery Rock University. And I go, well, it must be, no, there's no no Slippery Rock. But um, I came up with the, the college called I Stink You. And, um, you know, I said, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Who's going to be calling you in 18 months? Um, so um, great player within. All of them are four, diff- four inches away from being a great player. The distance between their left ear and right ear. We've met the enemy. The enemy is us. Their enemy is looking right at them when they look in the mirror. They got to conquer themselves. Go ahead, Gion. Your sister, uh, the uh, you know, I've, I've said many times. Of course, we had this kid from Quebec join us, but I said she's the best tennis player here. She's the only one who's won the provincial title. Uh, great focus fighter. She played a match against a younger player who's a provincial champion from Ontario. Really cold balls. You know, it's rubber, it so expands, contracts, the ball's not going anywhere, the wind's blowing. Um, but you know, it was just a battle of defense. She's got to add offense to her game. She's got to understand the green light point. She she just she needs to and it's it's very difficult to change tactics. It's not as difficult as say changing a grip. Um, but she needs to <clears throat> get in the gym, get on the track. And she needs to learn to force. I think of Bill Jacobson, kid I coached who played at SMU. He played another kid who played at Texas. And the only time the kid who played at SMU won a set was when CompuTennis was critiquing the play. And um, I just never, you know, in a very nice way, said, the way you're playing won't work. The way you're playing won't work. I know Austin Krychek, he's going to be in town for this Delray Beach tournament that's coming up and communicated with him a little bit, get him on the podcast. And he's coached by Philip Farmer. And his father has told me, Rob Krychek, who's been on our podcast, that, that Philip's been very, very good for him. And I don't know Philip that well, but I know he's a really upbeat guy. I know he um, coached the Bryan brothers. You know, motivational speaker, I've listened to a, a tape that's online. So one of my students played him and beat him years ago, a tournament called the Cotton Bowl. And it was a back draw, 14s. And I tried to explain to my, uh, the father of the kid I coached <coughs> that his son had won on the scoreboard, but he'd really lost because he didn't force. You know, guys missing volleys and missing overheads. So your sister, she really needs to add, no, I, I came back and told her, I said, you know, don't want to have the pitcher that you have, you feel like you have to always be a, a net rusher that, you know, offense is rushing the net. Four great players, Agassi and Graf, you know, of course now their husband and wife, but Naratolova uh, and Sampras, all offensive players. You know, the, the, the baseliners shouldn't be typecast. 
Like today we had kids inside the baseline, hitting against the wall, hitting the ball as hard as they could. And it's going to help their footwork, their timing, the swing's going to become short, compact. I would say there's far more tennis players have been developed hitting against a wall. I think of the three players from the place in Maryland that's highly acclaimed in the U.S. Junior Ori, who we spent time with, TFO, I was at a tournament, two tournaments back-to-back. Where I know he played some doubles with my son. So TFO, he, well, actually, he's a different generation. I got that wrong. So he's from the same club, but he's taken it to the highest level. But there was before them, there was um, uh, the kid who won throughout the juniors, Mitchell Frank. And he won, he, freshman year, he goes out, he wins All-Americans. And he had this mentality. So you got Junior Ori, who spe- had speed. Mitchell Frank, who had this uh, great mind. And then you had Kudlow who hit the ball the best of the three, but I was just told when he was a kid they couldn't pull him off the backboard. Sometimes you're better off just to hit against the backboard. You, you, you'll learn to hit the ball better by just hitting the backboard than you will taking a lesson. Um, but on the, on, with that being said, most people, I mean, they're trying to knock the backboard down. But um, go ahead. Felix. Felix, that's the kid with the YouTube forehand. And, you know, don't be too sensitive. No, you have a YouTube forehand. I mean, that's how a snake goes down a hole. And, you know, get your hand on the racket, not off the racket. You know, he's wearing, you know, these kids that are carrying a babble out racket is like a legal weapon. And, you know, he's got to slow down. He's, you know, he's got to really love. Uh, there's no difference between playing a set. He loves to compete, which is a great thing. I mean, there's always a positive, negative, negative, positive. Uh, Coach Natalia has been great for him that he, hey, you don't like technique. You know, coming back to Eric, top of the list, well, you don't like fitness and you don't like technique. I mean, quit taking your parents' money and flush it down into the, flushing it down the toilet. It's like, you got to love it. You got to love it. Uh, Aiden Wang thing. He's been taught great tools. Been taught great tools. Doesn't know how to use the tools. Doesn't know how to use the tools. But he's not knowledgeable in our world. It's, you know, that's where your guys have not studied content. And I know you've, you said, you know, I think that's a great thing for you to say as a leader. You know, I try to say that all the time. My fault first. My fault first. Um, we don't want kids to be on social media, but we have well over 10 years of content on Facebook. And take a few minutes. And then we tell people, if you're not studying the content we have, you're a part-timer. Now, granted, we have all these podcasts now, and these are they're so lengthy that we have to go back and ask some people that are very supportive of what we do. Would they say? Would they take notes on podcast one? Maybe get a group of ten people together, take notes on the podcast. Um, you know, we're we're not doing that, but you know, you ask kids questions, they have to have answers. They have to have answers, and you know, that, I look at a group of kids, and it's like they're in high chairs, and we're just spoon feeding them. And you tell them over and over and over again. But it's, you know, I heard, had a gentleman tell me one time, you know, a kid is still a kid. The kid's the same, but the times have changed. And, you know, I have three older brothers and they never, uh, in my, my guess would be pretty accurate, I think, that they, they never saw themselves on video, you know, going off to a hockey school. And be, that, wasn't, that didn't exist, but it came along by the time I was at hockey school where they're showing you a few things. Um, but now it's just overload, you know, the, the, the content. Peter Burwash used to say the easiest places to teach tennis, and he may be the most traveled 
person in te- all of tennis in the history of the game is the easiest place to teach tennis is where kids haven't been watching tennis on TV. And, you know, I got that today and say, well, you know, so-and-so does this and so-and-so does that. You know, so uh, the boy from Montreal asked questions, asked questions. He's shy, introverted. I said, I need you to ask questions. And the juniors will start asking, well, Djokovic hits the ball this way. Nadal hits the ball this way. And my answer to that is, well, we need to go through it, slow motion, because you'll see they're not violating physical laws. But don't go with imitation, go with science. Go with science. And it's not rocket science. I mean, it's not rocket science. But if you don't know the shape of the court, you don't know 19.1 degrees, how could you teach tennis? You don't know, you don't know how narrow that court is. Uh, you don't know, you know, what happens during the hitting zone, you know, and you're out there um, telling people, you know, turn the doorknob. Go ahead. Uh, Malik. Malik. Malik's been here before. It was a life-changing experience for him. His father, Rogers, told me that. Out the door, running. I credit Natalia for that. But he's back, and it's like, no, we got to find buttons to push and get on his case. But he responds so well to coaching. Now, he's lost a couple of the older guys in practice, but that's brawn versus brain. They're just out banging them. You know, it's, you know, they all weigh in by 40 pounds. And with, uh, but yeah, you know, with his eyes, you tell people, look at the bounce, look at the target, confirm, reconfirm, keep your eyes at the hit. And um, you got to train yourself to do that. I think that's where, uh, if you were to study what people do in acting school, um, James Lipton with the actor studio, he's passed away. I used to have students watch that tape, and then I would take clips from that tape. And so then I don't want to contradict myself, but so they are imitating someone, but they do it over and over and over again. People read about the girls that were in uh, the movie King Richard. They was, it wasn't like they looked at it for five minutes and they go, okay, I got it, I'm going to go out and copy it. They're looking at it. There are, there's experts in the room looking at it with them. There's directors and producers, and they're doing it eight hours a day. Um, with uh, Go ahead. Uh, Emma. Emma, I uh, need to put this on a tape, still need to make her, tech, or techni- or not her technical tape, or technical tape. I remember hearing Braden say, that person, they need to learn to be hit the ball 20 miles per hour. You can't blast everything. You know, her racket face is open on the backhand side, but her backhand is so much better than her forehand. But um, she underneath, she needs to understand end the point and the point ending situation. Um, with um, she didn't realize, and some of your other kids, uh, so Natalia's daughter, she's hitting the ball better and better. But you know, maybe soaking wet, she she weighs fifty pounds, and you know, you're hitting with someone. It's so great to practice with players that hit the ball slower, so then you have time to to work on things and. Um, but she has to reduce unforced errors, but when you miss, why you miss, take accountability. And, you know, she's got to, just like all the kids, you got to own the cone. You got to own the cone. And, um, it's amazing how people are like just shocked that they have to do that in tennis. You put a baseball player and you put a, a swing coach and put the baseball on the tee. I mean, you can watch the major leaguers work on that, but tennis kids, they, they need to go back to some basics, but I think she, she could play. She, she's overall well-taught. So 
But the Band-Aid still require, even though it's not like she needs major surgery on any part of her game. She has an overall good-looking game. But the Band-Aids are st- still require acceptance, awareness, acceptance, commitment. Um, but going back just to the, you know, with uh, the lessons, you know, you start to talk about, you know, you mentioned players and teachers with, um, like, say, your sister on the serve or Robert Steckley on the serve. Same thing. Same thing. The body's going left and the body's going backwards, period. Period. It's end of story. You're not generate forces in the upward direction. You know, Braden, you can't shoot a cannon from a canoe. You're not stabilized. Um, go ahead. Braden. Improved so much and so much. Um, mother's grave and PTs and the mom are telling her, no, we're not going to charge you for the tennis, but it's $1,000 a text. Two moms and mom <laughs> who was not uh, with your group, but here, so many pauses from both of them. But I walk by and I tell young coaches I train, okay, you can't talk the way I talk, but... I walk by and I say, hey, my psycho mom's, how you doing? And, you know, then the kids know I've said that. And I go, yeah, psycho hard and psycho soft. And with, um, you know, that's where with Braden's mom, psycho soft. And I think most moms, that's just, that's just natural. Ba- mommy's baby, they're babies. So like today, it's raining. Well, it just sprinkled all day. It didn't. And, you know, from the book, uh, Amazing Racers, Bill Harris, it's only a bad day if there's thunder and lightning. That's the only thing that's stopping you, is thunder and lightning. You know, so now we're February. This is a high school, and Fayetteville Manly is in central New York. So I used to go see my mom and read the Post Standard, and I started reading about this cross-country team. So before his book came out, I was like, this is an amazing culture. It's probably like the best. It's got to be one of the best cultures in American sport. And, you know, the two key words, Spartan and Stoic. Spartan and Stoic. So I go back to the last one name again. Oh, so Brayton, yeah. Is that tough love. There's soft love, tough love, and crazy love. And you need a little bit of all three. And everybody needs to be aware of that. And um, he's a good player. He's a good player. But then you hit somebody with, well, you're play- this is how Richard would talk. You just played Malik, and he tattooed you. He beat you like the bongos. He used you like a bar of soap. And it's in the, but then, you know, the kid's looking at you like shock therapy. Is he really talking to me this way? But what I think parents need to understand is junior tennis doesn't really prepare you for college tennis. Junior tennis players are not in a locker room until they get to college. Until they get to college. And, you know, they lose and they, they get in the car and they zoom away. Now, if you're at a local tournament and your kid loses, bring him back to the tournament. And don't make a big deal of it, but be in the background and have your kid watch who they lost to. Welby Van Horn, who's your daddy? And I know it's difficult to do if you're four hours away and you had a long car ride, but no, you go back and you watch who you lost to and you, then you find out they're not that good. You know? Yeah, that's exactly what happened this weekend. You know, my sister played a tournament this weekend. She lost first round in type three setter match. And, you know, she was fortunate to come the next day and spend the day at the tournament. And she saw most of the points that the girl played most of the matches, the girl ended up winning two or three rounds um, after her match. And, you know, she looked at me and was like, you know, I just didn't, I could have, 
you know, this match could have been so different if I just done one or two things different. No, she's 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 not doing what she's taught. Play at Jimmy Connors. Play the way you're taught. I had her, uh, uh, Robert Wojcik, Carla Navarro, Carla as her maiden name, Navarro. I, I had your daughter go watch this girl Monica play. Well, I Monica could do. You know, I watched her play a couple of practice matches a month ago. And, you know, I've worked with her. I've known her a long time. She could do things better, like everybody. But I just said, go watch her play. And I said, she's getting more out of systematic training than you are. A system is an organized plan. What I think one thing that needed to be said over and over again is, um, you know, your sister's playing. And even if she had won, she would have played the wrong way. Just um, Barty, Ash Barty, let the chips fall. You got to listen to these top players. I'm just going to let the chips fall where they fall. She's a great interview. People could learn so much by listening to her. You know, your group is there. We went three tournaments. So we go to the Battle of Boca back to back, and there's all these backboards. So the first weekend, I grind them. I give them a little bit of a tip. Okay, guys, you know, you could put 15 minutes on the backboard and 45 minutes watching. You know, Ivan Lendl at one point, you know, he would do that. He wasn't going to play a match till later in the day, hit 15 minutes, be 45 minutes off. Or if you're coming back from a layoff and injury, some travel, is you don't have to go practice three hours, practice three times for 45 minutes. And just to hear those pearls of wisdom. So we go back the second weekend, and I didn't say anything. That's the Tony Nadal. Just let him fail. Life gives you the test first and the lesson second. So they don't even go to the backboard. They don't even think about it. But also, too, is not one of them took any notes, to my knowledge. I asked them, and uh, you could tell me otherwise. But when I did, after that one day, we call it a character meeting. Okay, let's sit down. Who took notes? So they're not really a program. They're not really a team. They're not really a family. They're not taking notes. They're not helping anybody else. Hey, I watched your match. And, you know, it, it, maybe it's not a place for a young kid to say, well, I watched your match and you need to do this. But just chart 10, 20 points for your friend. You know, I always tell people, the kids, yeah, they're your buddies. And buddies, all they do is steal your time. A friend is somebody you're going to really turn to in a crisis. You know, that's where people are fortunate when their parents or their friends. Um, but coming back to Braden, um, he's a lot better player than he thinks he is. You know, you, have, you have really have two sides of it. Um, you have people who are cocky. Uh, I mean, one just comes to my mind right away, and he was called to the carpet on that. You, you know, the, the the coach from Montreal and the player from Montreal, who's the best player at your club? And they start talking about the last set they played. That, that's when you know someone doesn't know tennis. If someone played 10 times, okay, you played 10 times, what was the breakdown? And, the, you know, you listen to people played a long time. Yeah, we played once, and, you know, I was fortunate to get through that day. Is that it? Yeah, those are the guys. Um you know, we could go back another, another even, you know, one, we do that with kids. Okay, let's go three rounds. You know, it could be three questions, better yet, a feedback exchange. I learned that from Burwash at the end, sit everybody down. So, okay, let's have a feedback exchange. I want at least three things that you learned from today's practice or from today's experience. And you got to go home and you got to put them in a journal and you got to write it down. Um, but no, I think uh, talking to yourself, three generations, um, going back, so when Anderson and I first went to Richmond Hill, it was in the 80s. It would have been, I would guess, um, you know, maybe Richard couldn't go back and say, no, it was 90, 91. 
Um, but it was, uh, it was a long time ago. It was, um, you know, I met Richard and David in the eighties. So maybe by the time he was there, it was, it was early nineties, but it was, it's been a long time. And you just m- man, mentioned a handful of people. There's more, there's so many people. Um, and, um, with, um, no, there's so many people for years that Richard started. And Richard, it was like he was on an island too, because when you, when people, we train people and they go someplace, Richard was fortunate that he was put in charge. We've, we trained so many people, the group from Montreal that was here, I should say the two individuals, um, there's a coach who's from Germany who's been in Montreal a long time. And if you're, if you're not in charge, it's like you're on an island. So Richard, um, he, had, he had many people start. I think now the Canadians, I've said it before, uh, they definitely have a superiority complex um, in hockey. They used to have an inferiority complex in tennis. I have to say this is that last night, we, you and I were, we met with the, we had the, end of the day meeting, we had a character meeting because we want, we definitely wanted the coach and the player from Montreal to experience a character meeting. So you and I are meeting and uh, a coach I've trained a long time ago, Mike Custer reminded me that uh, this hockey game was on and I wouldn't have known, but thank him for reminding me. So I watched last night and I would like to say, I love Canada. I love Canadians, but not when the uh, two countries play. So the women, <laughs> the Canadian woman, woman, when it was last night, it was preliminary around four, two, but I think uh, they play again on February 16th and pulling for the U.S. to win. Uh, why do I have that chip on my shoulder is that when I was a kid, the Americans weren't even considered. Uh, the Canadians got the first shot. Granted, back then, the Canadians in Ontario were going through grade 13. But I went to so many college hockey games with my father, and, and uh, it was mostly Canadians. And then I went and played college hockey, and when I went out for a team, I made the team. And one of my brothers played at the same school. So I had a name tag, Smith, um, because my brother was there. But the name tags were already ordered for the Canadian kids that were recruited and not for the Americans. So, but one of the, I, always, I was in Canada living in 1996. And granted, I think it was Adam Deadmarsh, Jim Rogers. There's somebody, he'll call me up and tell me I'm all wrong on this. I think it was because he's someone who I've trained who was at Richmond Hill great guy, true Canadian, not a paper Canadian. So uh, Winnipeg boy, I think it was Adam Deadmarsh and, and Brett Hall. They played for Team USA, but Team USA won the World Cup. And I was living in, uh, I was living in Canada at the time. And I, was, I think the Canadians were ready to go to war. They were pretty upset that they lost the USA in hockey. I can say this one last thing that I think is funny about hockey. Then, what, what, then you tell me about your your experience with hockey people, you know, with, with people you know growing up and that mentality, because I don't have a tennis mentality. So Don Cherry was a hockey player, didn't quite make it to the NHL, played one game, played in the American Hockey League, Rochester. So um, his hockey career is done, he works construction, he sells cars, he starts coaching high school hockey. I think it was in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh New York. And anyway, he gets into coaching and the next thing you know, he's in the NHL. And, but then he becomes a color commentator and, and people who are my age, they would remember a TV character called Archie Bunker. He was the Archie Bunker of Canadian hockey. 
He was pro-Canadian. And uh, you, the younger brother always loves it when uh, someone picks on the older brother. So my older brother becomes a general manager in the NHL, but he's an American, and there's, it's not too many Americans in the NHL, period. When I was a kid, really young, there's only six teams, or only two Americans. So um, he's a general manager, and my mother never liked Don Cherry because of this. I thought it was great. So he's, a, he's an American, he's got a PhD, and he didn't play in the NHL. Like, what's this guy doing running a hockey team in the NHL? And Don Cherry said, uh, Mike Smith, I think he uh, wears borrowed clothes and combs his hair in the wind. And I go, that's great. But you tell me, I mean, I heard you talking to the kids about um, hockey. You know, that, you know, that is something is, uh, you know, we here in the States say in Canada, it's religion. What, I've heard you say that. Why don't you say that to our listeners about the hockey mentality? There's three types of sports. Um, non-contact, contact, collision. I tell tennis kids all the time, especially the boys, I'd like to see you in a helmet. I would love to see you in a helmet. It doesn't need to be violent, but I mean, you got to have a little courage. What do you got? Well, yeah, we talk about it all the time. You know, we bring it up all the time when we're doing fitness and, you know, how would they stand up uh, on a hockey team? You know, a lot of them don't really uh, show the athleticism and that backbone that most guys on a hockey team would have. You know, and I think that's the, that's the problem with tennis is they don't have that team environment. And in a team sport like hockey, they're always pushing each other. And it's like, it creates this culture of toughness. And you talk about how football and American football is such a great culture for that too, where they're always, uh, you know, we talk about being a team and, you know, analyzing, analyzing things to help each other out. And I think that's something, you know, going forward, uh, this particular group and, you know, for next generations to come, I think that's something to really emphasize. And, you know, going to a tournament, you're not just going to look after yourself. You know, you're going to look for ways to help your teammates or your people you train with grow because then ultimately it helps your environment too. And for me, like, you know, my first experience, like you said, most tennis players won't step into a locker room until they go to college. And that was my first experience too. So adjusting to that team environment was something that I had to learn from too. And I was always looking out for myself, you know, always looking out for like what was best for me. And it changed to having to look out for my teammates as well. And, it, you know, it was everything was, you know, if one person improves, the group as a whole improves and that's how you're going to improve as a player. So, yeah, I think a lot of tennis teachers, a lot of physical trainers in the U.S., it's a client. I'm working with my client. Well, maybe you could use that term in, in, in with uh, adults, but not not in juniors. Was that you'll say this in hockey? Um, I was fortunate to work with figure skaters. My father was a hobby coach. My older brothers, I listened to those figure skaters. I remember going to extra classes. I remember going to hockey school in Toronto and and uh, writing a letter and, and getting permission to uh, to pass the expert swimming test. So I didn't have to take swim lessons. I could take more skating lessons. And um, now I would say everybody in hockey can fly. And hockey's improved so much, so much. Tennis, not the case. I mean, we got people on the tour. They're on the tour because they're physical specimens and they're warriors. And, you know, that the, the technique, um, it's, uh, you know, I mean, you look at someone like Medvedev, nothing but respect nothing but respect, but anyone who really studies the game is that he could have better volume technique on the backhand side, just leave it at that. But that, 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 menta that mentality, but when you say that about um, 
um, Medvedev, he's got the hockey mentality. You know, another another thing is that coaches would say, if I was going to go to war, would I pick that kid? And, um, you know, I, I get extreme and think all young boys would benefit if they played tackle football when they're just very, very young. Um, you know, years ago we did this. I mean, if you read Bill Ayers' book, Amazing Racers, he does this with his cross-country team. They circle up, they're doing exercises, and he just says, hit it. And they all dive on the dirt. They all dive in the mud because, you know, he's, he's a genius. You know, so it's like, hey, this is what's going to happen. You're going to fall down across the country. Race. You're just going to get back up. You got to get dirty. Um, I quit doing that. I used to do that with tennis kids. It's like, hey, we got it. It's raining. This would be good. Let's get them over here. We'll get them dirty. We'll get, they got to go home. And, and uh, you know, then you start training, training and bring, you, you not only bring a different pair of shoes um, because you're, running but you bring a different pair of shoes because you're going to be you're going to be in the mud and um, i know that my i have to back off i have to keep a lid on coaching kids because you know like well i've been working with them for a year two years three years well now i can step it up you know you, you just shock them if you're stepping up from the beginning um the argentine what the americans call coaching we call child's play what we call coaching the Americans called child abuse. <laughs> yeah. But no, three generations have been great to have your group here. I hope it has been a life-changing experience. Uh, love to have you come back. The connection with, uh, I mean, I think that's what it really takes. Like say with, uh, you know, Mira, I talk to him on the phone tomorrow. And when you know somebody really well, people know it takes a minute just to catch up with someone. Like, hey, what's going on? And then also too, um, is information is information. The tennis court's still a rectangle. The, the facts are the facts. And, you know, you know, the game has evolved, but I think that's a crock, you know, that the game has changed so much. I mean, come on. There, you know, the, the gravity is gravity. You know, the laws of physics. But, um, but anyway, it's been great to have you visit. I hope the listeners have uh, got something out of this podcast. I hope there was some... Uh, perspective, some points made. No, thank you so much for having me. You know, this this past month, month like five six weeks have been probably the most insightful and probably the greatest learning experience I've had. And I've learned not only a lot about the students I've brought down, but I've also learned a lot about myself and just you know, just reflecting on the information that I've known my whole life. You know, it's like this this information we share with all of our students is stuff I've heard from a very young age and. You know, I've found a new found respect for it. Um, definitely going forward, it's like I see the importance and the value of um, just instilling like a great base on just focusing on skill acquisition. That's something that I, you know, I look back and I wish I focused more on versus results. And I think for young guys, no matter the age, I think it's important just continue to keep on building skills and develop your game as a whole versus, you know, just focusing on what works and, um, just being open-minded. Yeah. Are you a one or two? Ones are all in. You're only either one or two. You're either all in or you're not. You love the process. The process will love you back. And, you know, the, the winning is just thrive on the opportunity and, you know, with the way, how you've worked so hard for these kids and, you know, certainly the parents sacrifice to make this a reality, make them, give them the chance to do this and the worthiness. Do they really appreciate 
you know, what's given to them. And it is a vehicle. It's, you know, the, the winning's a bonus, you know, competing, it was all about, and it's, and competing is not just tournament time, you know, every day is a tournament, every situation is a tournament. But Gino, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, listeners. Hope you got something out of this podcast, uh, 79, I believe in the books. Adios amigos. Thanks guys.